Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was The Jam and In The City. I've got The Jam's Rick Buckler here today to talk about his new book, about The Jam 1982, and it's interesting to cover The Jam in the context of that final year and how that compares to the the early period of The Jam, as well as going through that very interesting year. So let's hear my chat with Rick. Ah. Hi, Rick. Uh, Thank you for speaking with me. That's all right, thanks. Obviously, I've got this wonderful book in front of me. Quite moving in a way. You've got the introduction there where you talk about the start of the band, the first single in the city. And then as you go through the book, there's the build-up to 1982, and then the year comes to pass. It really is um, a remarkable sort of windowing time for the jam. Yeah, I mean, it was, to be honest, it wasn't an easy book to write. I mean... When I wrote my autobiography, I just focused on the really good stuff that happened with the band and probably what most people remember about the band from a sort of external point of view. So sort of tackling this issue of 1982 and why the band split up was was quite difficult because I had to cast my mind back to what exactly was happening in that in that year. And uh, it was it was a bit emotional because I had to sort of remind myself of the really strange situation that we found ourselves in you know the optimism that we started the year with we'd got to a point where we'd obviously established ourselves in more than just britain as as an act and uh, and etc and we didn't really have to struggle quite so much to prove ourselves you know we still pushed ourselves don't get me wrong you know we didn't really want to stand still i mean all our albums were, were very different because of that sort of attitude of wanting to do something different and do something which moved the band forward. Um, we still had that drive within us. And then to suddenly find that, that Paul decided that that was it, when we knew that there was lots more in us, um, both myself and Bruce. And I think anybody who looked at the, at the, the progress of the band knew that there was so much more. Um, we hadn't really reached, I don't think, you know, any sort of end game as far as we were still selling records, we were still doing really yeah. well in, in the concerts, they were still selling tickets there, there's still a lot of interest, in, in you know, in, in the band. 
we were still sort of giving it our everything to it so yeah it was uh you know when you you know you asked the question what on earth could go wrong now do you know what i mean it was it was a very strange very strange sort of uh uh scenario in that year to sort of come you know to 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 think back on and to sort of try and write about it in a in a way not looking back because mm. a lot of people who contributed to the book simply looked back on it i don't think they were really i don't think they really put themselves in the place that they were at the time you know there's a lot of retrospective thinking which is easy to do hindsight and everything but you know fair enough that's that's the way it is but um from my point of view i really acted i really wanted to get it across about how you know we felt at the time um and uh, the sort of shock i suppose in a way that uh this was was happening and and it was it was quite a shock i think for everybody concerned absolutely and just prior to 82 81 you've got the band at the peak you've got tracks like funeral pyre your drumming on that track alone is just phenomenal and as you're reading in the book you've got kind of what's going on in relation to politics the reference to a really harsh winter in 1981 and then you go into the studio and, and start recording the gift, and you've got the, those photos, the context. You, you really start to get the, the atmosphere and that anticipation as we're about to enter the year. Yes, I mean it's it is a real difficult one to. I mean, I remember one thing that that you know struck me immediately. You know, when I sort of put myself back into 1982, was how we just got on with it. Do you know what I mean? We we spoke about this about Paul leaving, and then we just got back into what we were doing. We sort of immersed ourselves in the recording that we were because it was in a recording studio where Paul made the announcement. We got straight back into that, straight back into work, and it was almost not mentioned again. Uh, you know the reasons why Paul wanted to leave. I mean, I think that was the thing that I think people still scratch their heads over today is the reason. The reason. There was no reason, you know. There was no, there was no great scheme. I mean, the reason that Paul gave us about why he wanted to leave the band in that initial meeting was rubbish. Basically, he said that he want he felt like he was on a treadmill, and that um, he wanted to get off. But this was a treadmill that we wanted to get on. We always wanted to get on. We fought so hard to get on it. Um, so to find somebody in the band saying, "Well, I want to get off now," you think, "Well, that's crazy. That's mad." And of course, the first thing he went and did was got on went got onto a very similar treadmill. He re-signed with Polydor Records before the band had split, and just carried on 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 the same treadmill. So that didn't make any sense from the get-go. And then when we heard in 1983, in the year after we split, mm. that Paul had given it this sort of fairy story of, oh, I wanted the band to mean something, and I mean, I really, I just thought to myself. It just struck me that there was something wrong here. There, this was not a valid reason. Um, I think I know what the reason was. I think a lot of it had to do with how the the band was managed because there was a lot of questions being asked about why is it that you know John and Paul had all this money and me and Bruce didn't have very much at all. There was like there was this first and second class citizen thing happening within our own band, and we were beginning to ask questions. You know. You know why am I driving around in this this wreck of a car and I can't get out of top of the pops without you know the car breaking down um, and you know, it's just things like that and also on the other side of it how we very gentlemanly accepted the fact that if Paul wanted to leave 
we could deal with that. It was there was not a problem with that at all. If that's what he wanted to do, hmm. he was perfectly entitled to to call it a day and to walk away from it. What I think annoyed me especially was the rubbish that was talked about. He did it for some grand design. I'm sorry, but that's just not holding any water with me at all. When I, I mean, the more I think about it, and the more people ask me over the years, and I'm sure they've asked the same thing of Bruce's. You know, why did this happen? It wasn't musical differences. It wasn't wanting to move on. It, there was um, because the jam, I think, had stepped up to the mark and evolved in every possible way. Mm musically and songwriting and we tried lots of different things we brought in brass sections you know that we were we were we were probably one of the most flexible bands in the world at the time to be able to sort of move to different areas and styles and you know and, and as a, and as a, a band that's working with itself you know myself and Bruce as a rhythm section um I think we contributed a lot to the to the sound of the of the band um and I think that was a stark realization when you listen to style council stuff how bland it sounds to me anyway. So I don't think there's any there's any real sort of bitterness why, you know, Paul wants to leave, fine. That's absolutely fine. We could live with that. I think what annoys me, like I say, really, more than anything else, was the rubbish that was talked, as if there was something to be covered up about why he was leaving. And I think a lot of it was to do with the way that the band was managed, the way that it was sooner or later was going to, I mean, not to be too blunt but i think the ship would have hit the fan sooner or later yeah um and i don't think he really wanted to be in that scenario so i think he pulled the plug first um that's the only logical explanation if you look if you you know you think of all the discard all the other arguments um that don't seem to hold water that one seems to seems to be the most logical reason really fine you know it's just because the there was a lot that happened afterwards why we had to take the world to court and yeah you know, we, the, the difficulty we had getting our royalties and it was almost like somebody had whispered in Paul's ear, that you're the band, you're the only one that's, that's worth anything here, which was, I don't know, it's, it's, there's a lot of, you can speculate, this is the problem, there's been so much speculation about the reasons why all these things came about. I think another thing that sort of came to my mind was we never thought, we used to look back on bands in the 60s and think, look at all these mistakes these bands have mm. made over, you know, some management's run off with all the money. Aha, that wouldn't happen to us, you know what I mean? And I think it, there's 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 a certainly a good story to be told for people who are forming bands now that a good piece of advice is to learn the business, to know what you're entitled to, and, um, you know, to, to know about the royalties and the uh, the different sorts of yeah. royalties that come in from, from a band and to know the business. A lot of people learn their instrument and the, the stagecraft and et cetera like that. But um, to actually learn the music industry and the business and the way it's run um, is, is, I think, just as important really for somebody's career to to know how to, you know, it's almost like business school, I suppose, in a way. So uh, maybe there, there's, a, there's a sort of a tale to be told there that, um, you know, people coming into the industry should learn a lot about the industry as well as, learning their own instrument.
when you look at 1982, you were the biggest band in Britain, Town Called Malice, arguably the biggest jam single. And you've got your drums, Bruce's bass, propelling that track. You really were at that peak. And, and when you compare that song alone to the very start of your career, the sound has continued to evolve. So you're at, you were at your commercial and creative peak in a way. Yes, I, I think we... I think we were very proud of the fact that not one album is diff- is the same as any other album. I think we markedly moved on um, from in the city to modern world, especially that became a bit of a shock to the record company because they just wanted it. They wanted the first album repeated. You know, they wanted another version of that because that sold well. So they thought, oh, we'll do the same thing again. We'll, that'll be good. And we weren't really going to do that. You know, we felt that there was, you know, there was other things that we wanted to do. And you do get a lot of bands that do that. They sort of get themselves in this, it's like a trench. You know this works. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you don't go out of your comfort zone. And that's fine if if that's what you want to do. But I think bands should come out of their comfort zone. They should explore their 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 extremes. I mean, we didn't get it right all the time. I mean, there were some songs that we did that were a little bit questionable, really. Um, but we always had the core of what the jam was about to fall back on and to come into, to return to home base, if you like, and then start to looking out and exploring different ways, different, you know, bringing in brass players and steel bands and backing vocals and uh, trying to to expand what was, I mean, the jam was a four-piece band, yeah, but with only three members, you know, and we would, and the reason that it, I think we, we looked at it like that is because we, we always wanted to be a four-piece band, but we could never get a fourth member. So we tried very hard to sound like a four-piece band. You know, when we were on stage, you know, there's nowhere to hide with a three-piece. You know, you if anybody stops for any reason, you you know about it. And we sort of took advantage of that. And I think musically there are, uh, I think that shows. I think I quite admire three-piece bands because you know, I know how difficult it is to make it sound full and interesting. And, you know, without sort of, you know, you get a five-piece band, you get lazy keyboard players and you get you know what I mean as um you get people who just sort of drop out well I just I won't do a guitar solo now do you know what I mean and all this but I think the three piece you you really have to pull your weight so there's a certain discipline about three piece so I, and I think that sort of reflects in in us driving ourselves to, to explore different musical parts of it yeah and even with Malice you it was a double A side, and the fact that you were on top of the pops and, and did Precious and, and Malice in in one show that mustn't have been done many times. I don't think it. I think maybe the Beatles did. I'm I'm not absolutely sure on this, but yeah, it was a real honour for them to sort of say that to us because they they don't normally let you do that. I and mean, if you if you release a double A side, you know they don't they they never liked it. They said, well, you've got to pick one of the songs to uh, shine the light on um but they let us do that and i and i and yeah it's an amazing thing obviously tackle malice was the main song there but yeah i think because of the, the success the band had and uh, even the you know, bbc sort of recognized that to actually let us do that was just fabulous
when you have Town Called Malice. And then uh, another song from that era that was a big single, Just Who Is The Five O'Clock Hero. Both of those songs take an element of working class life, Paul's lyrics, and that resonated for the whole band, given your background and, and also the fans' background. Yes, I mean, Paul's lyrics were absolutely fantastic. I mean, that's... I think that's where, you know, why people still relate to it and in some ways still relate to it to this day because it still resonates with people. There's something in there which, because it, Paul was a great observer of life going on around. It wasn't preaching anything in particular. It was just observing and, and saying, well, look, this is me. This is what I see from my position. You know, songs like um, Man in a Corner Shop uh, and what have you, it's, they're, they're, they're just fabulous little stories and scenarios that are just, I think they're just so well, you know, displayed in, in the lyrics. And uh, it was, I think it was a, it was great to have something like that, to try and palette musically, to find something musically that, that sort of supported that lyric, you know, it was so, yeah, it was uh, no doubt that, um, you know, Paul was, I think at his peak in that time anyway, um, with it, with, uh, with his songwriting and, um, and with the lyrics, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's. I think this sort of comes into the, the realm of, you know, when people talk about the band getting back together again, because there was such a, a momentous, you know, uh, there was a momentum, rather, mm. that was built up over the band evolving and the way that we worked and et cetera, et cetera, that once that was broken, I don't think you could ever stitch that back together again. You know, I mean, if, if the band was ever going to get together, uh, and do anything, which I can't see ever happening, it would simply be going over old ground. And I, no, I think that's that's a real shame that 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 connection, that that sort of drive, was literally dumped, which was a real shame. I think it was almost uh, an act of musical vandalism to uh, to split the band up at the time. As a drummer in that time, just discuss just who is the five o'clock hero. But the drums on that song, as an example, you're really pushing the boundaries of, of what you could do to to meet the needs of songs like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the greatest drummer in the world, you know, but I did sort of take a leaf out of Ringo Starr's book, was that he knew, and I think he realised, that the song is the star, right? Not anything else. It's not somebody trying to be, you know, the best drummer in the world or the best bass player in the world or the best guitarist in the world, which Paul certainly isn't the greatest guitarist player in the world for all his skills as a songwriter. You know, none of us were were, were, were really outstanding musicians in, in uh, you know, in a lot of ways. But I think we were, I think we, we, we were trying to be as inventive as we possibly could so that we worked well together as a band. And that's what bands are about. You know, it's not... It's not individuals, it's it's actually working together, which makes that sound, which makes it work, which I think is, you know, you can you can put the same cake together with different ingredients and it isn't the same cake. You know, you can try everything mm. else, but and I think that's that's what makes a great band, really. And I think bands like, you know, the Beatles and you know, dare I say, and um, you know, and ourselves, it it is the sum of the parts that uh, that, that makes the gem. And there's there's no other way of, of doing it.
And in March of 82, there was the release of The Gift. What are your reflections looking back on that album as a whole? Um, I don't know. I think we sort of, for a start, we went back to a more simpler way of doing it. We were, we were very good at working with ourselves. We knew instantly whether something wasn't working or was working. So, and of course, it was quite a straightforward album in as much as that, right, we're not going to have any of, oh, there's no overproduction. There's not a huge amount of overthought on overdubs or what other what other elements we might want to bring into it. We're sort of going right back to basics. And we're just doing it as it may, as it was naturally felt as possible for us to do, to do an album. And that's, what and that's what we ended up with it's difficult to be to to sort of when you're working on an album to 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 try and figure out what it's going to end up like mm. you know we just did song by song and uh like we always did but and when it's finished you sort of look at it and you think oh i wish i'd have done something different or I wish i'd done something else. i think that's always there but i think we by that time knew whether we we were we were happy with what we were doing or not for all its maybe faults or whatever there might have been within it i think it's it's you're so close to the trees that you don't see it do you know what i mean you don't see the wood it's just it's very difficult to listen to an album with fresh ears after having worked on it on the little minuscule bits of it that you do to to stand back from it and just listen to it in in a in of any sort of I mean, it's nice these days, um, after not playing something for maybe five or ten years, pull it out and listen to it. It's almost like you think, wow, I just, I, you know, I, it's like fresh ears to be able to do that. Um, and you think, oh, it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Or, you know, it's so that's, that's nice. And I think it's nice when people say that they still like it, they still listen to it. I think if it's, Past that test of time, I think it's done all right. You know, I think we were doing something right. And in the Jam 1982, there's some fantastic photos, many of which uh, people haven't seen before, some of which is you and the the band uh, backstage on the coach in hotel, some of those uh, by Neil Twink Tinning. Had you seen all of those photos before? Did any of those come as a surprise? No, I mean, I had, well, a lot of them I had seen because Neil Twink is, uh, is a good friend of mine. And um, he came on the road with us for uh, the last 18 months of the, of the band. He, came, he was, you know, did a lot of photography backstage, which was brilliant because it wasn't the sort of photo shoot for, you know, NME or anything like that where we all stand in a line and look miserable or whatever. These are more sort of candid shots. That one on the front cover, for instance, taken in the corridor of the Sobel Centre in 1981. It's one of the last shows we did in 1981. Well, we were just talking about what the our second encore was going to be. Um, I think that just, you know, for me, it just conjures up memories of, we did that a lot. You know, we we suddenly decided that the night had gone so well that we'd, we'd do a second encore, or even a first encore. And we hadn't really thought about, well, what should we do? You know, what 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 numbers can we pull up? What do we fancy doing? You know what? So those sort of moments are really good, and it's quite exciting because you suddenly think, do you know what? We haven't done this one. They haven't done this song for ages. Let's just go and do it. And you think, oh, I hope I can remember how it goes. You know. <laughs> but so, but that gives it a sort of element of danger when you get into that situation. So that photograph sort of re-evokes that for me, anyway. But it's, uh, it's yeah, those sort of photographs that they're not really sort of press shots as such. You know, and I think that's a nice element to sort of they're taken from the inside out, yeah. which is 
which is great. I mean, I've got some really good photographs that Twink took taken from behind the drum kit during a live show. Um, so you see the backs of, of the band of us on stage and the crowd out in the, um, you know, all being lit up with with the lights, which is uh, not a view you often get when, when people take photographs of, of a live band. I really love the photos. And as you say, many of those are, are not stage press shots. They're very natural. They're backstage, unguarded moments. One thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, in addition to the album tracks that you recorded, you know, there's some great 12-inch uh, B-side tracks, some of which are covers, uh, like Move On Up, and that showed how you could all challenge yourselves and go into places that originally you didn't necessarily normally go. Yes, I mean, that. I mean, as you, you may or may not know, I mean, when we first started off, when we started doing the clubs, yeah. uh, we did all covers. We just, you know, and we became very, very good at covering other people's material, and it was it was a great insight of to how other people arrange their songs and you know uh, the the little things that the musical tricks that they would pull to to make that sound you know the make the made it make it sound interesting and uh, etc. Um, and so when Paul found himself pressurized from the record company because of the contracts to come up well we need a single and we need it within six weeks you know and Paul would say he was oh, I don't like writing to order. You know, how can you just sort of write a single that I'm going to be happy with as being a single? And that that often reared its head. So sometimes we would just look at all the stuff that we had recorded for an album and then just pick any old one. I mean, Tube Station was picked like that for a single. It was the worst one on there. We thought it was the worst single to pick. And we did it, you know, almost out of um, rebellion to the record company to say, well, look, we're going to give you this one. You know, because it was difficult to record. We couldn't get the arrangement right until the end. Um, you know, so we're just going to give this one to you. And But on some occasions, we would throw our mind back to days when we were doing cover versions. David Watts, you think, do you know what? That's a great King song. Not many people know about it. We're good at doing covers. We'll pull that one out of the bag. So that's what we did. So it was a, it was nice to sort of rediscover that skill later on, if you like, and just think, well, I love these songs like Move On Up and, um, you know, there's a, there's, a few of, um, there's a few of them dotted throughout our career, but it was really nice to sort of just pull them out and because we could do them easy. You know, that's what we sort of cut our teeth on musically to sort of do that. So it was, it was just really great to pull on those sort of songs. I mean, that was probably the, the main reason why we did covers, especially with David Watts, I suppose, was the fact that we didn't have anything else to, to actually release as a single. Um, so it was it was a nice sort of uh, filler, if if not well, maybe not filler, but you know a sort of a bit of relief from having you know, the pressure on Paul to sort of come up with a with a new song, really.
And in the book as well, lots of contributions by people around the band as well. And and also you obviously have a, a strong voice and you also get to be clear about the fact that there are some things that people assume are factual that are not a little bit like the bitterest pill because some people think about that that relates to the the band splitting but that wasn't the case at all was it no no it wasn't no i mean the reason that i mean i always admired paul for you know he can really look deep into himself and 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 find the reasons for you know that for writing a song about something i mean there's there's sort of numerous cases butterfly collector was another one that comes to mind really when you listen to it if, if you know the real story behind those songs and um yeah bitterest pill was had nothing to do with the band splitting or whatever you know it, there were there were other reasons there um so but to sort of wear your heart on your sleeve i suppose and, and just explore that scenario and just write a song about it i think it's i think it's a fantastic talent to be able to do that because you don't it's it can be a real dodgy subject sometimes you know i mean it's easy to write love songs and uh you know etc but yeah i and I think people relate again. I think it's something that people relate to because it's it rings true of of life in general. These things happen.
And another thing that, that's clear as well from reading this is that um, the final single, Beat Surrender, a real feeling that you didn't want to go out on a down note or whatever. It's, mm. a, it's a real vibrant single. Yeah, um, it was a bit strange all that, though, because we still had a little cache of songs that Paul had been working on and we'd, we'd done demos for and we were all sort of ready, really, to record. And that was one that we actually wanted to use as a single. But some of them Paul had put in his back pocket and carried on into Star Council so that they never really sort of surfaced as jam songs but originated as jam songs. So to pull that one as the last one was a bit odd. But, I mean, I must admit that it's not my my favourite of jam songs uh, for all sorts of reasons. Maybe I'm too too close to it emotionally. For, you know, every time I listen to it, oh, no, 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 I can't listen to that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we had to. We literally had to had to have something to fulfil. We had a contract to fulfil. Um, that's why the last album was a was a live album because there's no way that you know, given Paul's persistent in in sort of calling it a day on the band, we could never have done another studio album, which was a real shame. You know, it's just. I mean, the other thing I thought about was we could have easily have done a world tour to finish off with, but we didn't. We just decided to put a date on it, the end of 1982, to do what we normally did by doing a UK tour up to running up to Christmas, and that was it. You know, the the, the offers that were coming through to play uh, in other territories, to, to go to America or Europe, uh, Japan and stuff, you know, especially Canada, that was our second biggest market for selling records anyway. Um, we just didn't take advantage of at all. Um, and I think that that's a that's a bit of a shame that we didn't do that. Um, we didn't go to Northern Ireland, which was at the time it was a difficult place to to visit because of the troubles that were going on there. But um yeah, it's it's just seemed like it was all pulled up a bit too short. We, you know, we owned for only a few months to sort of wind this thing up um, after, you know, it's like running at a thousand miles an hour and then somebody says, right, stop. You know, and you, you, you've you literally got to put the brakes on. You've got to, you, you've got to have a completely different attitude to, you know, how you sort of go about things and what have you. So uh, it, it was a very, very strange time. I always thought that Paul would change his mind. The shows were going so well and the reception we were getting was very emotional. On, on that last tour that, you know, you think surely you're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater now, but there it was. That was it. Now I mentioned in the book, this was, you know, this was 10 years of my life from the age you know of about 16 to 26 when that was my reason for getting out of bed was the band, you know, was uh, everything that was, was put into it. So it was, and, um, and I think Bruce felt the same way as well. John certainly did. The band was John's baby. He'd sort of got us all the work in the early days and did a lot for, for all three of us uh, up until the point we got signed. So, yeah, he was he was devastated as well. So it was, it was a, you know, a shock all round, I think. I think Paul was probably the only person on the planet who actually thought that this was a good idea. But there you go. Everybody had their different reasons for wanting the band to continue, except for Paul. And... Uh, and I think his his reasons were dubious. But you know, but there you go. But like I say, we you know we were we were grown ups. We could live with the with that scenario, and uh, we certainly did. I think we stepped up to the mark like we normally did. 
um, we did uh, you know a great job of playing those last shows and recording the last few things that we needed to record um, and you know to get on with our lives I mean I I think all three of us are very grateful I think for what the jam did for us just for us you know as a very sort of selfish way um, it sort of set our tone for the rest of our lives all three of us so in that respect we've got absolutely no complaints or no regrets whatsoever I don't know whether Paul quite feels that way because he he would not talk about the jam mm. or play jam music at his concerts or anything after um, after the split. He wouldn't even talk to me and Bruce, <laughs> which was, you know, a, 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 quite a source of bewilderment for both of us for a number of years until until the penny dropped as to why he wouldn't. But, um, yeah, still, it's, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of bands that, uh, that it's, that sort of scenario has happened to in the past and I'm sure it will happen again. Maybe it's there's a little little fable in there somewhere. I don't know.
those last batch of live shows must have been quite emotional in a way because you had that build up paul saying that he wanted to leave in in the summer and then you've got a series of shows and building up to those december shows and there's some uh, great material that i think got released as extras to the gift live at wembley i think third of december and you're playing older songs like to be someone there just sound brilliant and that last show in brighton must have been really really strange it was yeah normally when we finish a tour you you we'd be buzzing about you know what was to come what were the new things that we were gonna uh, be doing next and there wasn't any of that i mean i remember looking at the crowd uh, especially on that particular night and seeing on the faces of everybody there exactly how i felt you know that it was almost a uh, a, a sort of disbelief i mean the, the connection we had with the fact with our fans with jam fans uh was very strong you know we we didn't um you know take them for granted at all uh we certainly did at that didn't at that time i you know there was no sort of them and us situation um and we always like to talk to the fans and treat them with just as much respect as i think that they they treated us so it, there was a they're very strong connection I don't know whether that still exists today with uh, with Paul. I don't know whether he still tends to. I hear a lot of disgruntled people saying, "Oh, he wouldn't see me. He wouldn't come out and sign my this, that, and the other." Um, so I don't know really um, whether he still holds those those sort of values that the Jam had. But I think one of those values was to be sort of honest and upfront with people about things. And I think this is one reason why it annoys me so much. This sort of fairy story as to why he left. I don't think that's particularly honest, and I don't think it was particularly straightforward with, you know, with with uh, with the fans, and, because no band is anything without the fans buying the tickets, buying the albums, coming to the shows, and I think if you lose sight of that, you've pretty much lost sight of a lot of things, really. But like I say, I mean, Paul hasn't actually spoken to me at all since. You know, you think to yourself, what on earth did I say? What did I, you know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I I don't think it's necessarily on our side of the fence. I think it's more it's more come from from him. There, there's something going. There's something odd going on there. Um, and I think a lot of it was probably to do with mismanagement. And um, I'll just leave it at that. But um, this was a real shame to sort of have to to resort to that to sort of cover things over. But uh, uh, maybe we'll never know Paul's real reasons. But I just I just know it. I know I get this gut feeling that the reasons that were t- were given. Rubbish, absolute rubbish. Uh, it just, just doesn't sound sound logical. Sounds nice in a sort of, uh, you know, fairy story sort of way, but it uh, doesn't bear much in the in the in the face of reality. Just to close, Rick, fantastic book, and given you've got the mix of uh, the points from yourself, uh, memories from people around you, those fantastic photos, and a bit of a setting in relation to the political context and and the weather and what. It really does get you back into 1982 and uh, encourage everyone to get it. And, and thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no, thanks for saying that. Cause it's always difficult to know whether it's got the right elements and whether it's done the right things. And But yeah, no, thanks. I mean, I just hope people, Jam fans or anybody who reads it, find something in it of value. You know, it's because uh, it was a, it was an odd scenario. But yeah, no, thanks for letting us do the interview. Brilliant. It's a pleasure. And, and I think maybe that's the theme that, that comes out then and it comes out now. And is that connection that 40 years later, that connection is still as strong, especially for the fans that were young and in their teens 40 years ago and, and now around 60 or whatever. 
they've still got that that memory of so, that special period of those five or six years at the jam as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just the fact that we're still talking about it and that people are still interested in it and the records are still selling. Uh, I have to pinch myself every morning to think, well, wow, you know, because we didn't set out to do that. We set out to be, a, you know, for ourselves, we set out to be a, a great band. That's, you know, that was it. That was all that, you know, just to like, like playing live and touring. And that's it's quite a simple sort of uh, ambition as far as we were concerned. So to have it this still being listened to all these years later it just blows you away. Fantastic. I can't think of no better way to end. Thank you so much again for your time, Rick. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. No, thank you. Thanks very much, Jason. All right, take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.